we enter a challenging VC fundraising climate. VC expectations are growing and the investment rate is slowing down. The bar is high, really high. I mean, very high. And you have a choice as an app marketer or an app owner, a gaming app owner. You can go into survival or you can get creative and look at financing opportunities outside of the standard VC pathway. Today we talk about the alternatives and bust some valuation myths with my guest, and he has really the cred to do both. He has 20 years of experience in launching and building technology businesses in the financial services and media sectors, and he has a previous career as an investment banker. He saw the opportunity early on to marry his traditional financial markets and technology experience to create a new financing model for the app and gaming economy, and that result is Pollen VC. I want to welcome Martin McMillan, founder and CEO of Pollen VC. Martin, great to have you here today. Thanks for having me on again, Peggy. And you're coming to us from where now? Uh, I'm currently in Bali in Indonesia. Uh, so okay. I'm with my family on, on six weeks of uh, remote working. Um, and uh, yeah, this is the third year we've done it. It's, uh, it's, proving, uh, it's proving great for the kids and also pretty good for our producti productivity as well. And speaking of productivity, probably a little bit of downtime as well to think about what you're doing at Pollen VC. And we'll get to that in a moment because it has been a really exciting year for you. I've been watching the blogosphere. I've been watching what goes on at the events, and you've been at a lot of them. But first, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of your career, because banking and media, they come together in your career and your company. Tell me one thing that I won't find on LinkedIn that tells me a little bit more about how you started this, because I get the feeling you might have been in this pinch yourself. Um, yeah, it was one of these, I was the guy with a problem type of scenarios. So um, I had spent uh, two years of my life doing a music remixing app. And then through launching, um, through launching the, the remixing app on the app stores, I came across the problem that we currently solve, which is around payment delays, access to capital, etc. Um, so I took uh, I, I took the proposition in terms of we needed to to access capital that was trapped up in the payment cycles of the app stores and, uh, and the advertising networks to several different invoice financing companies in the UK. And of course, none of them really could understand what we were talking about because it doesn't follow a normal, you know, send an invoice, Apple pays the invoice type of uh, scenario. So um, that's where the, the previous experiences of, uh, as a banker came in because um, what we uh, what we spotted was was basically the, um, the there's phenomenally good credit quality um, from all these platforms. So the risk is actually very low, um, and so that was the sort of seed of the idea, if you like. And we use technology to verify um, exactly what's been earned, and then we we lend money against it. So yeah, so it was one of these. Um, I was the guy with the problem type of uh, founder stories, and uh, things have evolved since we did our first lending. Um, substantially evolved since we did first learning in 2015. And you talk about it, you know, problem and solution. You had a problem, you found a solution. Let's talk about that for a moment because it's a volatile market, obviously. Alternatives to venture capital keep finance flowing. And you have made the move to make an offer. You offer an alternative at Pollen. Unpack that for me a bit. What exactly do you do and how do you do it? 
Um, so what we do is we provide what we call revolving credit facilities um, to gaming studios and app developers. And by revolving credit facilities, this is, um, this is for the first time introducing debt into the capital mix of an early stage company. So for a long time, most early stage companies would just be reliant on venture capital. They would uh, you know, raise their seed round, a series A, a series B, et cetera, diluting themselves in the process. And um, with, with Pollen, what we do is um, we're, providing, um, uh, we're providing these credit facilities because we are able to um, get very comfortable with um, the, the, uh, the, the credits behind them. So let's say you have, um, you have in-app purchase revenue and, and uh, in-app advertising revenue, and some of those uh, guys are going to pay out in 30 days after the sale, some in 60, some up to 90 days later. Um, so money is sitting there trapped in the uh, payment cycles of these platforms. And what we do is we digitally verify that every day, and then we give you a line of credit to borrow against um, that money. So essentially for us, it's relatively low risk because we're taking, you know, taking risk that the platforms won't pay out, which is obviously um, a, a good risk. But it gives the studios very early access to capital. And they can, they can roll this into uh, user acquisition and and use it as a very efficient way to grow without having to raise additional equity every time. Now, this isn't to say that um, studios shouldn't raise equity. Absolutely, they should. This is just introducing, if you like, uh, a mix of capital, so some debt and some equity, into the overall mix, um, uh, depending on the risk profile of what the capital is going to be used for. It's interesting that you're talking about a mix when actually the marketers themselves, when they're on the show, they're talking about a media mix and blended metrics because it's different. It's different now than it was before in UA and in marketing overall. And you've had this solution that finances against receivables. You've had it, as you said, you launched in 2015. Just from your perspective, Martin, you're out there, you're speaking with the marketers, you're speaking with the app companies, the gaming studios. What is the change in the market dynamics that makes your alternative, this alternative, so much more appealing now? I think firstly on the user acquisition side, marketers have got way better understanding um, <clears throat> the, the cohort dynamics and particularly thinking through a more financial lens about, um, about cohort P&Ls, how long it takes, um, and then if you like a, a sort of a yield, if you like, on the user acquisition over time. So I think the, the the financial thinking among the UA community has got um, better and the overall financial literacy has got better over the last few years. Um, the other thing that's made a real difference to our business is, uh, you know, as you say, in the start from 2015 until really 2021, what we were doing is lending against the receivables. So this is just the money that's trapped up in, uh, in these, uh, the payment cycles of the, um, <clears throat> of the, of the platforms. Now, um, what then happened was there was a rise in um, uh, revenue-based lending. So this was basically the VC darling uh, lending business over the last few years where people say, I will lend, I'll lend you money, you put it into user acquisition, and we'll take a share of your revenues until it's, re until it's been repaid. So there were lots of these companies, very much sort of cookie-cutter um, uh, propositions coming to market. And that, in a way, really helped us, in a way that the rising tide floats all the ships. Um, so uh, for a long time, we were really pretty much the only ones doing this. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, there, there's more noise, there's more talk about non-dilutive financing. But of course, it, not all financial products are created equally, and revenue-based loans really don't work to fund user acquisition. It's a complete ma mismatch, well, 
right. it doesn't they don't work to you uh, to to uh, for free to play games um they it, it's 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 not a very effective mechanic simply because the lifetime value of the um the, the asset if you like the the game or the app does not does not uh, particularly correlate well to when the loan has to be repaid so it's a bit like a square peg in a round hole but yeah. it very much got us thinking it's like what you know how could we use our kind of superior knowledge about um how uh, how gaming studios really operate and we came up with this um uh, we, we came up with this um addition to our lending model which we call residual cohort lending and the way to think about that is this is not new users that are expected to be acquired in the future. These are the users you've already acquired. So the way to think about it is if you press stop on all new user acquisition today, how much kind of long tail expected value in all of your existing cohorts, whether they were acquired yesterday, a month ago, or a year ago, are expected to sort of play out over time. And what we do at Pollen VC is we look at these two pieces of collateral to decide the size of the credit line. We look at, first of all, the receivables, the AR, which we've been doing for some time, and then we add on this amount of um, value that's trapped. And typically, we're able to offer um, greater access to capital much more flexibly and on better terms than revenue lenders, venture debt providers, etc. And you're talking about the way UA used to be approached and funded. And of course, that is behind what we've seen is a tidal wave of activity, M&A activity as well. And it's destined at some point to dry up. You've been very vocal, Martin, uh, about what that means, this other phase. Did those acquirers overpay in the M&A boom, I'm wondering? Uh, look, I think time will tell. Right. Um, and what I think we're seeing just now, and, and, and this is, you know, as you said, I've written some posts and done some conference talks recently. Yes, on, you have been in the middle um, of some controversy, Martin. That's why I wanted to hear about it. <laughs> Perhaps a little. Right. So uh, all we we're trying to do is to say is to point out that, you know, for a long time, all of the M&A has been in a rising market. It's all about, you know, multiples, comparables. Well, these guys went for this much. Therefore, these guys should be worth this much, et cetera. And it all gets sort of talked up. And then all of a sudden, obviously, the you know the world has changed over over the last few months, and and people are getting a lot more sanguine about you know whether it's writing VC checks, where, whether it's the M and A, a lot of stuff has cooled um, there and so on as well. And people tend to look through a different lens. And so um, what we were suggesting is basically like instead of a top-down framework valuation to you know based on whatever you know comparables and what everyone else had been sold for. We, you know, we, we suggested a framework which is basically on a bottom-up, saying where are the real value drivers in the gaming studio? And it really came down to three things. The first one being, you know, how much value is in these residual cohorts, right? So what's effect, effectively, if you press stop on it all, what's the present value of everything that's expected to happen? So you, you get to that as a starting number. So that's the first thing. Now, the second part of the framework is all around how good is my user acquisition machine? What kind of financial returns am I going to be able to make over time? So if I can make, for example, you know, if I've got two or three year long uh, LTVs on my game and I will, I'm able to, um, to make, let's say, a 5% monthly return on capital in my UA spend, that's 60% annualized return. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty efficient machine. And if you can put more and more money into this machine and it still keeps running, then again, you can create a financial framework to value how good my 
machine is, if you like, and, and um, how much I think I can scale on my, my machine. And those two um, parts are really the core of how we see a financial buyer. And bear in mind, this is deliberately very much looking through a financial lens. And then in, in part three, you've got basically everything else. You've got, you know, what's the cross-promotion capabilities of my, you know, if I were to be acquired, you know, can I put a monetary value on that? Um, then you have, uh, you know, you have the team, you have the culture and um, all of these. Now, I'm not, obviously, you're never going to talk down, you know, acquiring a studio with a great team. But if you look at the ability of um, of teams to produce hit after hit after hit, it's very, very low. There are very, very few people who can really call themselves hit factories. And this is, you know, this this includes some of the biggest, biggest names in the game, right? Um so really what we're talking about is if you're looking at it through a very, very kind of astute financial lens, then you know, here's a framework um, based on these cohorts and the efficiency of the machine um, to come up with a monetary value that's more defensible in a tougher M&A climate. And of course, understanding what you have right now for users that's really important in hypercasual because you're not going to have them. You know, the retention curve there is not very long. So, you know, generally speaking, it's like a 14 day. It might be a little longer because they're changing mechanics. We're hearing about hybrid casual, casuals looking like hypercasual. Um, it's unlocking the value of users you currently have and understanding that and saying, okay, as you said, push stop right now. What do I really have? At Pollen, are you working primarily with the free-to-play, or is this for all the game genres? Um, there, there, are, there are a couple of things. I mean, we the, the hyper-casual as a genre, we're seeing less and less kind of interest activities. We're seeing it wane as, a, as an entire sector. Every single person we know in hyper-casual aspires to create longer LTV games. Hyper-casual can be a great sort of you know one-shot mm. ticket to the moon, if you like, for, for one game, puts them on the map. but you know, a hyper-casual studio being expected to create hit after hit after hit is very, very difficult and kind of not very good for the soul. So all of these guys are looking at, you know, how can I create, <clears throat> you know, potentially leverage the success I've had in hyper-casual and create games with longer LTV genres that are building more of a franchise that's something more valuable that someone's going to ultimately pay for. If you look at the m and I mean, how many hyper-casual studios have been, have been acquired? I actually can't think of any. Hypercasual publishers, of course, they have been, but the, the future revenue stream of a hypercasual publisher is dependent on how good they are in terms of deal flow, you know, where they get the cannon fodder from lots of different studios to keep cranking out hypercasual hits. And I think that's getting harder and harder. So everyone's got their eye on creating longer LTV games, building proper franchises where people will stick around for months or years as opposed to days or weeks. Well, Martin, there's a lot that games companies have to learn. There's also a problem of financial literacy as well. And we do have to go to break just for this moment, Martin. But when we get back, we'll talk about that problem. We'll talk about how the landscape is changing. And we'll take a look at maybe a surprising example. So don't go away, listeners. We'll be right back. For maximum customer engagement and retention, choose CleverTap. CleverTap is a leading customer engagement and retention platform that helps digital brands maximize lifetime value. Over 8,000 apps around the world, including Vodafone, Star, and Sony, trust CleverTap to improve user engagement, boost retention, and fuel long-term revenue growth. 
Learn more at clevertap.com. That's clevertap.com. Welcome back. We have Martin McMillan, founder and CEO of Pollen VC. And before the break, Mark, and before the break, Martin, we were talking about what games companies need to know and how things have changed. And what that comes down to is also a problem of financial literacy that Pollen has been addressing. What are you doing so that basically marketers, companies, they need to know when to turn to equity, when to turn to debt? It's a tough call to make. How is it being handled? How are you handling this at Pollen? I think one of the things we've always tried to do as a company is, is pay it forward a little bit in terms of financial education. So you get better outcomes when people really understand the financial um, uh, financial impacts of what they're doing. Now, in gaming companies and mobile companies generally, there has been a very um, interesting and kind of unfortunate kind of way that things have evolved in that there's been almost like a, there's very poor communication typically between finance leads and uh, UA teams and marketing teams. And, you know, we've always advocated for much, much closer ties and really getting the finance teams to understand the business, the mechanics, the metrics, if you like, of user acquisition and also vice versa, right? So for user acquisition teams to understand the financial um, side of it. So, you know, very often what, what would happen is you would see finance teams allocate UA teams a budget. So let's say there's a budget of you know, half a million dollars for a month or a million, 100 grand for a month, whatever the number is. And that would be allocated from a budget. And the, the UA team would go and spend that money to acquire as many high value, high paying users as possible. And really, um, that, that's a really uh, very, very old fashioned way to look at it. We've always advocated for if the finance and UA teams really understand each other's business, then the question should not be, what is my monthly budget? The question should be, first of all, do we as a company have a user acquisition machine? Do we have an investment formula where, you know, with the right capital, we can, you know, we can, we can make sort of predictable, repeatable um, <clears throat> returns on the capital invested, right? Now, unfortunately, that's where most people fall over and they just can't get those unit economics to work. Um, but for those that can, you know, that, that's great. And if finance and user acquisition teams are working together, then uh, the next part, the next question to ask is basically, well, how, where can we fund cap? Where can we find capital to feed the machine? Uh, and that should just go through a dispassionate stack, um, starting with lowest cost first, up to you know, up to higher cost sources of capital. So immediately that starts with your ad network credit line. So if um, Facebook or TikTok or Google or whoever is prepared to give you 30 days of trade credit, that's like a, a free risk transfer of LTV risk on you to them. So you should always take it and always keep it maxed out. Next, you have maybe internal cash, money that's sitting slopping around a bank account, maybe from another uh, another game that's earning like 1% per annum in interest or something. And you could redeploy that money into a much higher return, um, putting it through your UA cycle. So you should rationally use that next for, you know, for as long as you've got the... Um, um, the, the capital to do so. And then what, what people then do is then they turn to, you know, facilities like uh, revolving credit facilities, the kind of thing that we do at Pond BC. Um, and that has got a slightly higher cost attached to it, but um, it all comes down to cost versus return. If it costs you, you know, 1% per month to borrow money and you're able to in invest that at 15% per month, then, you know, your return after paying for the capital would be 14%. You just divide, you just um, 
and subtract one from the other. Um, and then right at the very bottom of that stack, if you've exhausted all the debt options, all of the internal options, and the, the user acquisition trade is still red hot, then maybe you go out and raise some equity. But hopefully you're doing that on a much higher valuation, on much better terms, because you've been you've been keen to show your VC investors you've been super capital efficient with how you're how you're allocating capital within within the company. So this is a framework or a way of viewing this, a lens through which to view what you need to do, what your options are based on your company. You've also come up with a bottom-up tool and framework to value your actual company. Tell me about that, because that's a fairly new tool in the line of tools that Pollen has. Yeah, I mean, th- I mean this goes back to, the, um, uh, to, to some of the conversation about M&A. Um, and it's how it's about you know residual value and then the efficiency of your machine. So one of the things we have is a you know we we have on our website under our calculator section we have a whole suite of financial calculators. Um, some of them are to uh, to help you unpack um, the the advertising economics, the ROAS and LTV modeling, and also cash flow modeling. Um, and there's one there, and it's again it's a fairly high level tool, but it's just a, a tool there that helps you estimate what residual value may be trapped in your existing users then you use that obviously as a as a, as a framework for um uh for ascribing a, a a valuation now that could be a vc valuation it could be an MA valuation it could be just you know for internal diligence you want to you want to just you're interested in how much inertia you've got in the user acquisition flywheel so yeah mm-hmm. all, all of these tools there are designed to unpack various different financial topics um, don't require any kind of data feeds or anything. They're just really to help improve um, financial literacy because we always see it where people have a greater understanding of the financial dynamics of, of user acquisition. You always see better outcomes. Now that tool, that latest tool, that has also been the topic of several talks, several articles, some raising some eyebrows. It's always good. You know, there's no such good, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Um, why do you think this is, Martin? What have you touched upon? What nerve have you touched upon? Um, <clears throat> well, they, I, I've, I've been through, in my, in my career, a number of different um, economic cycles. And I think that uh, because uh, things have been so good for so long, people have sort of um, forgotten a little bit uh, what to do when everything's not up and to the right. Uh, so since 2008, we've been pretty much on a on a on a very very decent bull run in gaming. It was harder until you know maybe 2019, definitely through the pandemic and all the rest of it. All of a sudden, gaming companies, particularly that were kind of out of vogue, they were seen as non-VC fundable, hits-driven businesses. All of a sudden, the tide massively turned, and everyone and their brother was setting up a VC fund for gaming. So there's been lots and lots of VC activity. There's lots and lots of M&A activity, and of course. Everyone just loves to keep talking it up, talking it up, talking it up. Because if you're a you know, if you're a founder, you're the investors. You're you know you're you're somewhat sort of um, biased to do so, if you like. And what we were trying to do there is just sort of uh, just give a little bit of a rain check. So not to you know not in any way to kind of be that contrarian or anything, but just to try and um, and, and and put some sort of like some ground zero metrics because. Part of the reason is actually to to, to help founders and studios um, argue against like you know really aggressive down rounds or you know kind of predatory M and A offers, right? Um, now, on the basis something is worth what someone is prepared to pay for it, um, 
that's great in a, in a super bull market talk it up environment but in a in a down environment um we figured that founders needed to be armed with some you know some tangible financial metrics around uh their business so that they that they can um uh they they, they can argue from a from a better position of strength so let's stay with metrics for a moment what metrics do you need to look at does a founder need to look at to avoid sending short-term ua costs you know into the stratosphere uh so it's so something we've been looking at a lot more recently um uh, and, and we've realized you know as people go out for longer and longer ltv games thinking that this is a big pot of gold really it comes down to financial returns and over what profile you're making a financial return right so you could have a, a mid-core game where you're making uh you know, a 60% return in six months, right? So you turn a um, dollar into a dollar 60 after six months, you're making a 10% monthly return on capital. We always like, we always advocate for bring it down to a monthly return. Don't just look at, you know, the 60% return, does it take me six months or four years to make that 60% return? Because it's going to make a huge difference how I allocate capital. So we always suggest bringing it down to a monthly return. So let's say I've got a 10% monthly return on capital. That's super solid, right? That's you know, if you mm-hmm. annualize that to multiply it by 12, that's 120% return on capital over a year. Really strong. Now, I think the mistake that some people are making is are they're looking at like really, really long-term horizons. They're looking, well, I'm breaking even after maybe 15 or 18 months. So I get my dollar invested in the UI, I get it back after 15 or 18 months. And I expect to go and make maybe a, you know, maybe a, 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 a 15, 20% return, but it's going to take me two or three years. So you may find actually those when you break it down to a monthly return, people are making you know, maybe half a percent per month or one percent per month. So when you annualize that and, and you compare you know, shorter LTV versus longer LTV, it can make a huge difference. Now, that's not to say you might get some long LTV games that have crazy high um, monthly returns because people keep paying for ages, ages. But what we what we're advocating for more and more is to is to look at your total LTV, subtract your CAC, so you look at your profit. Now how how many months does it take take me to earn that profit? So you bring everything back and you rebase everything to you know, whether it's a hyper casual game or it's a mid core or it's a merge game or it's a puzzle game, whatever. Bring everything back to a monthly return on capital, so you can compare, and that allows you to make more informed choices across genres because you might think hey my my merge game's got like a super long ltv but when you look at the monthly returns it's actually you know you should probably be making different sorts of games because there are better um better financial returns to be had so yeah monthly return is a i think a super important metric you've worked with a lot of companies and probably seen a lot of surprises you know where as you put it you're looking at one goal you're seeing one metric but possibly blinded to the other you know you're seeing that this game would be really good but it's going to take a long time and of course in this climate that's the variable you don't want to play with you know because things change rapidly can you offer an example of a company that you've worked with and maybe you know got back onto the path of seeing it through this lens you know being more financially literal literate being more focused on what really matters uh, I, I can't give a specific example, but just like contextually from a lot of different conversations, you know, there's there's been this sort of like this this ping pong. So everyone was interested in hyper casual because 
phenomenal returns, very short space of time, but it's very difficult to keep up the momentum. So everyone then goes and looks for much, much longer LTV games, puzzle games, merge games. You go from a month to a year in terms of in terms of LTV horizons into multiple years. And what we've seen empirically um, recently is that VCs are less inclined to want to fund super long LTV games that are very, very capital intensive to actually get there. So if it takes you, I mean, you know, if you want to, if you want to you know, do something at scale, you want to spend $100,000 a day, but your game isn't going to break even until day 400, you're going to need $40 million of someone else's money before your first cohort is even going to break even. So VCs are typically shying away from those sorts of games that require this huge, huge, like, you know, pushing the super tanker out of port type of um, UI investments and wanting people, I'm not saying anyone's going back to hyper-casual, I think that's, that's, that genre is definitely waning, but where you've got more reasonable, maybe three to six month break-even points, um, that's more of the companies we're seeing getting uh, getting funded because that's more of a more of a palatable risk-reward trade-off. You don't have to keep funding, keep funding for you know, tens of millions of dollars to see if something is going to deliver. You're going to know if it's going to deliver within 90 to 120 or 90 to 180 days. Um, so I think uh, VCs um, are looking at those user acquisition horizons in a slightly more sanguine lens than they were maybe you know, six months ago or nine months ago. Martin, been a very interesting conversation and above all, really opening our eyes to our options. So with that in mind, I want to move to some rapid fire question answer. I'm just going to throw out a term. You tell me what you're thinking and we'll do three of them. First one, self-publishing. Studios need to self-publish if they're ever going to have a hope in hell of selling their studios. Virtually all studios that got acquired in since the beginning of 2020 were uh, were um, self-published studios. Um, acquirers are not interested in buying a studio where someone else is responsible for getting your games to market. They're they're interested in acquiring you know gaming companies, not uh, talented teams of developers. So it's essential. That that is certainly controversial. I know where you get your reputation, Martin. Um, I'll leave that there because that's probably another discussion in itself. We'll leave that out there for the audience. Number two, break even. Uh, the sooner you break even, the easier your life is um, in, in, in terms of UA spend, right? It's just, you know, if you are, it's a bit like being a farmer, right? If you're a, you know, say you've got two different ends of the spectrum. One, you've got like someone that's farming salad greens. And you plant your crop, and then you have the hydroponics, and seven days later, your crops are at market, right? So there's only a seven-day window for things to go wrong, maybe a hydroponics fail or whatever it may be. Compare that to, to a longer-term crop, I don't know, maybe something like sugarcane or something like that, where you've got maybe a two-year time horizon. A lot of stuff as a farmer can go wrong. You could have floods, you could have drought, you could have you know, people changing their taste for your crop onto another one. So time horizons are really important. The quicker you break even, you get to the lily pad of say, hey, I've earned my money back now. Everything is everything back is is gravy. So, you know, obviously depending on genre uh, and overall risk appetite, but basically the quicker you break even on UA, uh, the easier your life becomes. And not only because I'm a Game of Thrones fan, but you're talking about it so much. The climate is changing, so we will go with that. Winter is coming. Uh, I, I think it's here. It's absolutely here. 
Um, what you're seeing over the last few months is stuff is still, all of these deals that have been in the pipeline are getting announced and they're closing. And so the, the market has been sort of fooled into like, oh yeah, lots of deals are still getting done. Now, of course, deals are still getting done. There's a phenomenal amount of dry powder still tucked up in VCs that has to be deployed. I think it gets deployed in earlier stage companies, in seed and series A companies. It doesn't go into massive mega rounds for user acquisition and gaming companies. And also, you know, everyone's just got a just got a um, a, a much much you know, dimmer view of the world. Everyone's more cautious. Everyone's playing wait and see. You know, where does it land? What's going to happen? And you know, with uh, you know, further recessions in the winter, what is that going to mean for gaming spend, etc.? So I think people are just generally much more cautious and um, I think we are, you know, we're in the middle of it, and it's, um, it's, uh, it, you know, it's potentially a long freeze as well. Well, then we have to wrap with this, Martin. You know, you leave me on a cliff here, cliffhanger that it is. Um, VC financing was red hot, but cooling down. Winter is coming. Winter is here. What is your top tip, either as Martin or as Paul and VC? Top tip to survive and thrive despite it all. I, th- I think I mean, it's, it's probably it's a bit boring, but it's, it's what you know. All these visas coming out with blog posts and playbooks about how to survive the winter and stuff. Just like, just be sensible, right? Don't um, you know? Don't expect the world to to stay as it was. Uh, look at what resources you have, what you need to get through it, and how you're going to survive. Is it the best time to be like, you know, taking big bets? No, it's more important to survive. So look at what you have, conserve your cash, be more capital efficient about how you, you know, how you use cash, how you deploy it. Um, don't just expect the VCs to be there for you on a phone call like they, you know, they might have been 12 months ago. Um, and you know, just have some survival instincts and you know, just uh, trust your gut. And part of that, of course, is knowing your options, which brings me to asking you a couple questions about how to stay in touch with you, but also where to find the tools and the resources that you offer at Pollen VC. What's the best way to get the best overview? Uh, so from uh, from the, all the tools and content, so we have uh, we have a pretty active blog. We we talk about the financial aspects of user acquisition and running a gaming or an app studio, and we also have a whole suite. I think we're up to nine different financial calculators now, um, just uh, under the calculators tab on our website. Um, if folks want to get in in, in touch with me, uh, I I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, um, so please just reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way. Um, to to, uh, to to get in touch. Excellent, Martin. And that's what we'll do. I follow you there as well. Thanks so much for sharing today. Thanks for having me on the show, Peggy. And of course, if you have a story to tell, maybe like Martin, some advice, whatever, then reach out to me on social or email me, Peggy at MobileGroove. MobileGroove.com is where you'll find my portfolio of essential reads on the industry and resources for the app economy. You can also check out this and all earlier episodes of our shows on Amazon, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And if you prefer video, well, hey, we've got you covered there as well because we've got this podcast in video powered by The Groove over on YouTube. So until next time, remember, every minute is mobile. Let's make every minute count. Keep well, and we'll see you soon. 